This is OTBAM. This Liverpool team are going to coast to a league title. Fair enough, that's a great achievement. But that Man United team were an all-time great because they weren't playing very well early in the season. Does everything have to happen in the same period of time though? The Liverpool not have those elements of that team. They have to win the Champions year, League. Season. They have to win the Champions League this not year. If gonna, but, but not if they're... To equal Manchester United treble season, mm. they have to win at least the Champions League in the league, right? And you could say that by not winning a cup, if they don't win a cup, then they're not... It's not as good a season. Man United are always going to be able to say, we want to travel. Did you win a travel? No. OTB AM, Ireland's only sports breakfast show. Weekdays from 7.30 AM, only on OTB Sports Radio. Live 24-7 on the Go Loud app. The OTB Podcast Network with Virgin Media. Catch all of the UEFA Champions League and Europa League games live on Virgin Media TV. OTB AM. This is OTB Sports Radio. I am delighted to say we've got Jeff Benedict with his, his new book, The Dynasty, the inside story of the NFL's most successful and controversial franchise, is released this week. Um, a couple of quick questions before we get into the, the meat and bones of this, Jeff. One thing I'm always interested in is when you spend so much time researching a project like this, is there ever part of it which becomes a little bit of Stockholm Syndrome where you begin to really like the people that you're covering? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, definitely. Um, that actually happens. It's happened in pretty much all of my books. Uh, and in some of the longer articles I've written that take six months or more to write. When you get close to people and you really get an opportunity to uh, get into their personal lives and understand who they are as human beings, there's a lot to like. And uh, that certainly happened in this book. Uh, there was a, I developed a lot of appreciation and, and I would say affection for some of the people that I wrote about and got to know in the course of this project. Um, in, in parallel to that, what's your, what's your own personal view, having been through this whole process before with the New York Times bestselling uh, Tiger Woods biography, what do you think now of where Tiger is and, and how your research into him shaped your, your thought and relationship with him is kind of what I'm, I'm hinting at. Like, how do you feel about Tiger Woods now? Well, it's interesting. I didn't know anything about him other than the publicly reported material about him, but I, I had no connection to him before working on his biography. And, and I'm also not a golf fan, so I, I don't watch golf. He's not someone that I followed closely as a spectator. Uh, so I came into it with a, a very open mind and pretty objective. And as the longer we went through that project, the more admiration I developed for him as a person, not as a golfer. I mean, I already admired him as the most accomplished golfer ever, but I'm talking about more his personal character. And so I would say that my appreciation and understanding of that deepened as the project went on. Um, I think it's important for particularly people in my shoes who write biographies, one of the most important qualities of a journalist in that genre is empathy. My motto is less judgment, more empathy. Uh, and as I went through the Tiger Woods process, I developed more and more depth of appreciation for him. And I, I went through the same thing with the New England Patriots because I didn't have any relationship with any of the main characters in the New, Eng New England Patriots saga either. I'd never covered the team. I've never been in their press box. I was, I'm not a football beat writer. 
So I came into it with a very similar approach that I did with Tiger Woods, which is it's all new to me. And I'm starting with a clean slate and, and an open mind. Was this, was this a bit more difficult to start with a clean slate in, in some respects, given how all-consuming for the sports media, at least, the Deflategate scandal had been? And, and just for the, the level of coverage that there's been around Belichick and Brady for such a long period of time. Well, it's similar to Tiger. I mean, I, I, can't, I don't think there's an athlete on the planet who's had more saturation coverage than Tiger Woods. And his, you know, some of the things that have happened in his past that would be considered scandalous, I was certainly well aware of all of that going into that project. So in the Patriots project, things like uh, Deflategate or Spygate, obviously I was well-versed in those like everybody else. How could you not be? Uh, it, that didn't really color anything I was doing as a, because I'm really in this case writing a biography, not about a person, but this is more like a biography on a franchise or an organization. And I focused on three key um, people in that story, the owner, Robert Kraft, the coach, Bill Belichick, and the quarterback, Tom Brady, but then a lot of other players and personnel in that story as well. But I think the idea here is to try to get into, when you deal with Deflategate or Spygate is, to look at those situations from the perspective of the individuals who are in it. And that's the new part is how did they see it? How did they deal with it? How did they use it uh, going forward? And I think that that's the real interesting part of the story. And all of that was new to me. I, I think that's, uh, it's really interesting to hear that because um, one of the binary things that's happened, particularly over the last two and a half or three years when it became maybe not clear that the the Brady-Belichick relationship was going to end, but that it might end. There was this uh, very pronounced public debate about who was responsible, who gets the credit. You know, it's a, it's a credit sandwich, but who gets to eat more, who, who bites more. And actually, the whole point of the book, I think, is, is particularly the way it, it starts, is that this isn't a binary thing. The, the, the credit isn't shared out among two men. The owner has to get an unbelievable amount of credit in this too and ultimately it's his franchise he is the one who collects the trophy at the ends and for, for Europeans watching sport by the way that's a very very strange thing because here the captain of the, the soccer team and all the other sports picks up the trophy there's never an owner who wanders onto the field in a suit it's always somebody who's bloodied and grass stained and uh, you know as a, as a watcher of American sports you're, every year you're like well this is very strange but your book does a really good job we're starting at the start, and uh, if, it, if everybody's going to re reduce this to a binary, who's the greatest? It's like, well, it's a, a tripartite uh, dialectic that is required around this. Yeah, you make an interesting point. American football does have a tradition that when a team wins a championship, it's the owner of the team that typically is handed the trophy first, and then tradition is the owner then hands it to the coach, and the coach usually hands it to the quarterback, and, and the Patriots have certainly followed that tradition. But I think it, what gets lost in, in our American tradition is that the role of the owner is not as obvious to fans. The role of the head coach and the quarterback is easy to see because one of them is wearing a helmet and the other one's wearing a headset. And they're on the field for every game and they're on television. And Brady and Belichick, deservingly so, have been at the forefront of the credit in New England for the last 20 years. 
But one of the things I wanted to really explore more in the dynasty was the role of the owner, because in this case, probably more than any other American sports team, the role of the owner has been incredibly critical to the, to the championships, and yet it's been so understated and misunderstood. And if I could sum it up, one of the most interesting things that was said to me in all of the interviews I did for this book was, I interviewed Rupert Murdoch, um, the, head, the CEO and founder of Fox News. And Rupert said to me, what was very interesting, he said, the thing about Robert Kraft is he's the ultimate diplomat. If he had gone into politics, he would have gone down in history as one of the greatest dip diplomats in American history. But he went into other businesses like sports. His diplomacy, his ability to keep Bill Belichick and Tom Brady married and performing together for 20 years is the greatest achievement of his ownership tenure. There's no doubt because it's what's enabled this dynasty to live longer than any football dynasty in the history of American sport before. So it's a hundred years of time and the Patriots have gone for 20 years. Usually football dynasties in the United States last 10 years at the most. And so I do this comparison in the book where I liken Brady and Belichick to John Lennon and Paul McCartney. And they stayed together as we know for less than a decade. They were the greatest band ever, but they couldn't share the same stage for very long. I see Belichick and Brady that way. And the mastery of Kraft's ownership is he figured out a way to keep them together for 20 years. And as a result, they won so many more championships than any other team. What is that particular part of diplomacy? What's the skill that allows him to do that, do you think? I think it's, so there's two facets to it in this case. In the case of Belichick and Brady, it's number one, appreciating and understanding that the coach you've selected, by the way, a coach that no one else wanted, he picked Belichick when he was, didn't have a winning record and didn't have a resume for winning as a head coach. He gave him a lot of power and authority to run the team. And Belichick delivered very early and started winning championships. So on Belichick's side, it's delegation. It's delegating authority to him and then allowing him to exercise that authority without interference. That takes a lot of discipline. Most owners aren't disciplined enough to do that especially when the head coach is making decisions that are unpopular and may be counter to what you think he should be doing. Kraft has been master, a master at self-discipline and allowing Belichick to operate the way he needs to. On the Brady side of the ledger, I think it's building a personal relationship. This, this relationship that he has with Tom Brady has become familial. In other words, it's like a father and a son. And it's genuine, it's not, it's not fabricated, it's real. And it's been built over a 20 year span. And so these are two guys who actually use the four letter, four letter word L-O-V-E with each other all the time. They love each other as if he is another father figure or if he is another son in the family. That relationship is, is what helped keep Tom Brady in New England for so much longer than he probably would have been without that relationship. Jeff, one of your, your other earlier books was about Steve Young, um, who comes at the end of one of the great uh, dynasties in 
the uh, 49ers. And you can see how um, Bill Walsh was the central figure in the first part. And then obviously they win later on with George Seifert as well. That's a dynasty that kind of has two separate, quite distinct eras to it. There's three separate distinct eras to the Patriots dynasties, but it's with the same characters in the two main positions. It's a, it, that's what I think makes it so remarkable. It, there's no question. Uh, and I actually studied, I had the benefit of, because I wrote the Steve Young biography with Steve, I had the benefit of knowing a lot about the 49ers dynasty, how it was built, how long it lasted, why it came apart. And I thought about that a lot in writing the book about the Patriots, because interestingly, when Robert Kraft bought the Patriots in the early 1990s, one of the very first things he did was he flew to San Francisco and spent time with the executives who were running the 49ers, because at the time, the 49ers were the kings of the mountain. And so he wanted to see how they built their dynasty. And then he proceeded to build it better in New England. And one of the things that he certainly looked at that really made an impression on him was the departure of Joe Montana, who was then the greatest quarterback of all time. And I think that Robert was really determined once he realized how good Brady was and how important he was to the franchise, mission number one was keeping him in New England for the duration. And so I, I think that the timing thing is really important with the Patriots because that's the secret that everyone wants to figure out. There's sort of two things. One is how did they build it? But then more importantly, how do you sustain it? Because there's plenty of teams that win a championship or they might even win two, but six. And, and in the Patriots case, they went to nine Super Bowls and won six of them. I've got a, a follow-up question to that then, because um, the, the thing that, that strikes me immediately off the back of that is Joe Montana being asked the questions at the last Super Bowl, the 49ers were there. He was wheeled out for all sorts of commercial activity. And with a real sadness in his voice when he was asked, what advice would you give to Tom Brady? He was like, stay, don't leave, don't leave. I was like, oh, that's so heartbreaking. All these years later, he thinks that he should have stayed and fought for his place against Steve Young. And the advice that he's giving to the man who is, is, is like obviously slightly better, his successor and somebody who desperately wanted to be him when he was growing up is don't leave. Brady didn't listen. So why do you think the, the, the relationship eventually breaks down? Well, first of all, I, I would actually look at, I love what you just said, by the way, and, but I would just, on the end of it, I would slightly tweak it and say, I think Brady, in fact, did listen to the advice. If you think about it, he played for the Patriots for twice as long as Joe played for the 49ers. So in reality, he did stay. You know, in other words, it's just by the time Joe gave the advice that he should stay, Tom had sort of done that 10 years earlier because he could have left 10 years earlier, eight years earlier, six years earlier. There, there were all these junctures where Tom could have left and didn't. So I actually think he did stay. What's, what's so almost otherworldly is that he's still playing football after 20 years mm. and he, he's still at the top of the game. And I think that that's why it's sort of hard for anybody to say to Tom, here's the way you should do it because He's now doing things that have never been done in the history of the sport. So who can really advise him? You know what I mean? It's just, he's, he's an outlier in, in a real uh, truest sense of the word. But in terms of how it ended, I think that from my perspective, what I was interested in is 
the breakup was so unusual in the sense that it was without animosity. It was without finger pointing. It was an amicable split. And usually when there's a divorce, it's not amicable. And whether you're talking about a real marriage between a husband and a wife, or whether you're talking about superstars like John Lennon and Paul McCartney, breakups usually don't go well. This one actually did. They, they had a, an incredibly unusual parting. And that's why I, I chose that scene the way I did. And it also helps explain, I think, why it's not so surprising that in the last 10 years, there was a lot of tension in the Brady-Belichick-Patriots dynamic. But tension comes with greatness. Tension comes with being at the pinnacle year after year after year. If this were a mediocre team, I don't think there would have been much tension. But these guys are, were at the top of the mountain for 20 years. So you would expect some tension. What's, so that's not the unusual part. The unusual part is that they navigated it for so long without having that you know, acrimonious breakup. I think one of the things that um, the whole world has taken away from The Last Dance is this continuous narrative that Michael Jordan is the alpha dog. He is literally the most competitive person on the planet. I, I do wonder, though, if there was a similar bank of video footage about Brady and Belichick, we wouldn't actually see that these three men are cut from the same cloth, that actually, you know, you, you can't really say that Michael Jordan is, is more competitive than Tom Brady when you look at what Tom Brady puts his body through to get on the field to play the 16 games regular season. Yeah, I would never get into an argument about whether one is more competitive than the other because <clears throat> that's an argument you can't really end. But what I would be comfortable saying is I don't know any athlete who's more competitive than Tom Brady. I mean, so maybe there's some that are, maybe there's one or two that are on the same plane and maybe Michael's one of them and maybe Tiger Woods is another one. But there's nobody more competitive than Brady, for sure. Uh, I think he's demonstrated that over, it's not just 20 years. He's demonstrated that really since high school, the way he fought his way to become something that he wasn't, or at least that people didn't think he was. And then I think what's interesting, the pairing with Belichick, <laughs> Belichick is a, you know, the, the term workaholic is an overused phrase in society and in sports. But you're talking about two guys now in Belichick and Brady who live at the stadium. They live at the stadium. And um, that kind of fire, you know, they'll win a Super Bowl and the next morning, instead of celebrating, they're talking about what they have to do to get back here in 364 days. And that's, that mentality never wavered for them. And then I'd add one more thing, which really makes this seem unfair to everybody else, is the ownership. As a businessman, I think Robert Kraft possesses the same kind of competitive uh, intensity to win that he has in his coach and his quarterback. Now, it's not as obviously visible because, again, he's operating in a space that you don't see on television. But I know after observing him for the last two years and looking at what he's done over the the breadth of his career, it, it permeates throughout the whole organization. This whole organization is all about one thing, winning all the time. 
Jeff, why were so many people happy to work with you on the book and to grant you interviews and to give you access to what they were thinking? Well, first of all, I don't know if I'd use the word happy. <laughs> I was happy that they were working with me. But, you know, a lot of times um, answering questions, especially the kinds of questions that I might ask, which can get to be quite tedious and detailed, it can be, um, you know, a pain. But I, I tried to build relationships with the people that I thought were key to telling this story the way I wanted to tell it. And I took a lot of time to do that. And so relationship building is really important when you're trying to develop a level of trust that will allow people, make people comfortable enough that they'll tell you the things that they haven't necessarily talked about before. But they have to, I think they have to feel that you're not gonna abuse that. And that's, that's the really important part is in other words, this story needs to be seriously told. It's got to be told in a way that is going to be true and rise to the level of what's gone on here in, in New England for the last 20 years. And that's not something you can just convince people of when you show up on the first day. I think it took a long time um, to build that with people. And part of that is just being around folks. Where I could, I tried to do interviews in people's homes. Um, I think you get a totally different tone and feel to an interview when you're sitting in someone's home as opposed to like in a, in a press room at a stadium or something. I mean, I'll do an interview wherever I can get it, but I tried in this case to try to be in places where people would be more comfortable, where the setting would be more intimate. And, um, and I just took a lot of time. I listened, frankly, and watched a lot more than I asked questions. Is there a sense that the organization is ready for its legacy to begin to be digested in, in, a, in a way similar, I think a little bit to, to Jordan reaching a point where people were not underappreciating for forgetting, but like just a kind of reminder that hang on a second, what we've done here is absolutely incredibly important. It, it's like Belichick famously wouldn't cooperate with anything for ages. And then over the last couple of years, it's done a couple of different things, particularly the, the 100th anniversary of um, football where he, he publicly started to go out and give people access to his brain power. He did a football life and it was a, a multi-part football life. So you've got the sense that he was beginning to become cognizant of the fact that as a, as a great football person, his story needs to be told to inspire future, future generations. Yeah, I, I really don't have a sense of whether anybody there has started thinking about legacy. I, I, and I'd hate to sort of suppose any of that. I don't know. My sense is that everybody there, and including Tom Brady and Rob Gronkowski, who are not there anymore, I think the whole group, the Patriots organization, the ownership, Belichick, the players that remain, I think they're still focused on winning. I really do. I don't think anybody is yet looking over their shoulder and thinking about what they've accomplished, I think there's still a, a lot of forward looking about what could still be done. Jeff, you obviously have a, a long um, history of understanding your own stories as well. And you, you've seen the various controversies that have um, come from the stories that you've told in the past. What's your instinct about what people are going to seize on in particularly the talk shows in America? What, what is going to be the, the couple of bits and pieces that they pick from this book and go, got to read this. Wait till you see what so-and-so said. <laughs> I, I, I hope that the answer to that is 
I mean, I'll answer it this way. When I started the writing process, my editor said to me that the mandate was he wanted to learn something that he didn't know on every page of the book. The book is almost 600 pages long. And so that's 600 things that he's expecting me to reveal that, that were not generally known. So I really tried to go places where uh, writers hadn't gone before to go into rooms, back rooms where important dialogue took place, where just big decisions were made, where heated arguments occurred. And so I think starting really early on, you're in the room where, um, you know, the first scene of the book is in an emergency room where Drew Bledsoe's life is on the line. And there are some things that happened that night that I think will, will make news all over the sports world because of what occurred in the ER. And then fr- from there, it just takes off. I think the tension between owner Robert Kraft and head coach Bill ba- Parcells, who was Bill Belichick's predecessor and was Bill Belichick's mentor, those are some of the most intense chapters in the book. And there's a, lo- a load of material in there that I think will make news. It is new. And then it just sort of goes from there. Um, the way they deal, you mentioned some things like Deflategate and Spygate uh, and Aaron Hernandez. I think the way that the team navigated through those and actually used some of those things as um, a form of motivation to improve, to become better, to become more disciplined, I think all of those things will be interesting whether you like the Patriots or not. So I, I'm, um, it's only like the last decade or so that I've got super into uh, reading about the NFL and, and that opening scene, there are so many bits of it that I had no clue about. Like even, even the medical process of taking Drew Bledsoe's blood out, cleaning it and putting it back in. I didn't know that the medical science was, was at that level. I didn't realize that his hematoma was so serious and that's, um, that he was on the verge of death and, and that the, the three men are there watching this and, uh, and that his career is effectively, it looks like his career is, is over. I didn't realize that they were such good friends either, that the families had, had become close at that point too. So, I mean, um, I can see why the challenge of something new in every page is, uh, I guess, fairly intimidating from a writer's perspective when you're out to that, but you, you get the, the thing going right out the gate. It is intimidating. Uh, uh, that's a good word, actually, uh, on your part. I found it intimidating. I found the whole experience of writing this book. Um, I'm not saying I was intimidated every day. I don't want to exaggerate. But given what I was writing about and the breadth of it, the size of it, the <clears throat> sort of overwhelming sense that this is a very large story, um, that part was intimidating. I'd be lying if I said it wasn't. I think that scene in the hospital, though, to me, it's the perfect way to bring a reader into a really big story like this. It it does a couple of things. It literally puts you in an emergency room, which you usually don't get to go there, and, and watch a very skilled surgeon save a star athlete's life. And then you have this moment that is it, it seems like a Hollywood moment, like it would be made up. When he wakes up from the procedure and he's a little groggy and he's, you know, trying to get his whereabouts of where he is. And he, as he opens his eyes, he sees his wife sitting beside his hospital bed to the right. And she's kind of rubbing his hand and being there like you'd expect his wife to be. That part is normal. 
But then when he looks up from his bed to his left side, he sees the owner, Robert Kraft. He sees the head coach, Bill Belichick, and he sees the rookie, Tommy Brady, standing over him like these three almost like mythical figures. Like, what are they doing here? And it, it, it is, it's, an, it's an incredible moment. And they're looking down at him. And I, I used it because at that moment, nobody in their right mind would have predicted that those three guys, Kraft, Belichick, and Brady, were going to become the nucleus of the greatest American sports dynasty of the century. Because at that moment, the owner had never won a championship. The coach, Bill Belichick, had a career losing record. He, hadn't, he didn't have a winning record at that point. And Tom Brady had never started a game. And so the idea that the three of those guys were going to become what they became would have been unthinkable in that moment. And so it's almost like Bledsoe saw the future but didn't realize what he was seeing. And I thought that was a great way to start the book off and also to just sort of signal to people that we're going to go some places where you never thought you'd get to go. Yeah, no, you're dead right. And that is exactly the overwhelming. You read Nico, wow, this is, this is absolutely incredible. And the, the symbolism isn't lost. Anybody, anybody who's followed pop culture for the last 20 years gets the symbolism of the three wise men appearing to, to somebody at a, a moment of life or death experience. And you've done a great job really living up to the challenge of, of capturing um, the greatest sports story in American sports history. So you should rightly be proud of the book. And I wish you every success with it, Jeff. It's been great spending some time in your company. Thanks so much. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Appreciate it. OTB AM. This is OTB Sports Radio. The OTB Podcast Network with Virgin Media. Catch all of the UEFA Champions League and Europa League games live on Virgin Media TV.